Um, so as it is January, as I uh, mentioned before, I, I thought I would start uh, by talking a little bit about step one uh, and seeing if I can relate it to our Buddhist practice and teachings. Um, and step one in Alcoholics Anonymous says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And uh, in other programs, of course, the word alcohol is uh, replaced with uh, whatever the addiction of choice might be. And I have to confess that I have mostly focused on the word powerless, sometimes on admitting as well in this step, but I've somewhat avoided the word unmanageable, that our lives have become unmanageable. And I'm not sure why that is, except maybe I just didn't get that far in the step when I've uh, written about it and spoken about it. Uh, maybe a little bit that I hadn't thought it through that much. But it's been something that's been up, and actually I think my viewpoint on uh, the step and indeed the m meaning of the step is becoming more and more influenced by that or informed by that word. So I'd like to talk about that a bit. Uh, and and, I, and I'll start by relating it to our meditation experience. Uh, and, and one of the things that's interesting about teaching this class, this college class that I've been teaching this month, is that I get to start with these raw beginners, and they're all kind of on the same, at the same level. There's a few that may have had some experience with meditation or Buddhism, but basically they're just a bunch of beginners. And they're all, you know, college students. It's an upper division class, so they're, most of them are uh, 20 or a little older. Uh, so they're very, there's a kind of open-mindedness and curiosity. We practice uh, meditation in class, and because it's a one-month class, it's classes four days a week, two and a half hours each day. It's the only class they take for the month. So Jan term at St. Mary's, people, they have these different kind of uh, more experimental classes. Uh, my wife is in Ireland with 25 students. I got to stay here, but it's okay. I don't have any resentments about that at all. So. Um, but one of the things that I notice, and it's been quite obvious this week, this was the first week of class, and today was the last day of the week of classes, is the effort that all the students seem to make to control their meditation experience and their sense that when it's not unfolding the way the book says or the way they think it should be, that they get frustrated and they think that they're doing it wrong or that they're, they need to figure out something else. And, you know, from my viewpoint, they're experiencing the unmanageability of their own minds, of their own bodies, of their own meditation. That you can't manage it. You can't control it. Yeah, and you can say you're powerless, but it's also, it speaks more to this effort at control, the effort to manage things. And it's, you know, it's hard to say to people, well, um, when you meditate, don't try to accomplish anything. Because why would someone come into 
you know, a meditation center or take a college class without some desire to accomplish something. Of course, there's a, there's a desire to accomplish something. So then we're faced with this challenge of how do I try to accomplish something without getting caught up in the effort at control? And we can see this also points to the third step, uh, turning it over. And, I, and certainly to me, steps one and three are intimately related, They're really talking about the same thing to a great extent. And we can talk about it, and I can give instructions or describe aspects of this process. But as you know, until you kind of step into it for yourself, you can't really start to understand it or certainly to uh, navigate the process of meditation. And I keep having to say to the students, some of the things that I said tonight, just, you just need to keep it simple. You know, don't, don't try to figure this out and don't think that you're in control. You have a, a role to play. You know, your, your role is to show up and mainly, as far as I'm concerned, is to show up and try to sit still for a certain period of time and within that period of time to try to pay attention to your breath. But you don't have, you're not responsible for staying with your breath the whole time. You're not responsible for stopping thinking. You're not responsible for getting rid of sensations in your body. Um, you're not responsible for the emotions that arise. You are responsible for how you react to all those things. And that's where we want to step in and actually make some effort to notice, oh, I'm trying to control this. Breathe, let go, come back. Oh, I'm starting to think about, uh, you know, my grade in the class. Okay, notice that and come back. If you allow yourself to just continue on with an obsession, having seen it, if you have seen it and you've still decided to carry on with it, then you are responsible for that. You've surrendered your, uh, you know, your uh, potential for, for letting go, for freedom, really. And, and you've said it's, you've abandoned yourself to that addictive tendency of uh, obsessing, which is, to me, one of the really most powerful addictions we have that that uh, just mulling and rehashing and and fantasizing and regretting and just taking things and just working them through our minds over and over things that we don't control you know and this this um, you know desire to manage comes out of a very natural human impulse. I mean, uh, life is uh, scary. It's um, not under our control. It's got a lot of risks. Uh, we have a lot of um, things that we have to do. Uh, 
we have to support ourselves, we have these relationships, we try to satisfy our need for uh, you know, social relations and uh, uh, creative or, or um, you know, work, the need to just satisfy ourselves through being, you know, a, an active uh, member of society. And, the, and just not to mention, I mean, the financial responsibilities that can be so oppressive. And then we're carrying all the baggage uh, that we might have uh, picked up from our childhood or from our, if we've been through trauma or addiction. And, um, you know, there's nobody taking care of me, you know. It's like, I've got to take care of myself, right? I'm responsible for myself. Nobody's going to fix me. So don't I have to manage this thing? Don't, I better, you know, stay on top of it, right? Which is another reason that I, again, appreciated what you said about um, right now, you know. Uh, to everything there is a season, you know. To be able to say, now is the time to stop being at work. Now is the time to stop worrying about my relationship. Now is the time to you know, be engaged in this. Uh, so we're, we're driven by all these um, fears and impulses and, uh, you know, ultimately our addiction is... Uh, related to that whole uh, set of fears and, and uh, worries and desires and um, uh, aversions and resentments because, you know, our addiction is, I think, fundamentally a, a, a drive to control how we feel and to manage how we feel. And when we, when we, uh, or overwhelmed with these feelings, you know, to to replace them, to try to replace them with some substance or some behavior is, uh, in, at first, of course, just a solution, it's just a way of of trying to uh, manage uh, the discomfort. And then, of course, uh, that way of managing becomes uh, the, the problem itself. So one, the thing that has, the idea that has really gotten me thinking about this aspect of the step is the question of Am I an addict? Am I an alcoholic? Or not? That so many people seem to struggle with. And it's certainly an aspect of step one. It, it's not explicitly in step one, but it's implicitly in step one. That we are, when we admit we're powerless over alcohol, that our lives become unmanageable, we are admitting we're an alcoholic. When we admit we're powerless over drugs or over food, or, 
that we're admitting that that's our addiction, that that's our condition. And many people uh, resist um, labeling themselves in some way, and there are various reasons why people do this. One is that maybe uh, you don't have like these kind of cl the classic conditions. Maybe it doesn't seem like your life, your life doesn't seem out of control or, uh, you know, it's, you feel as if you kind of control it, but, you know, there are some lapses. Um, or um, you read that your addiction is defined by this and you don't have that. Or some people don't want to label themselves because they just resist the idea of labeling and uh, you know and, and some people use kind of Buddhism as an excuse for that because Buddhism says there's that I shouldn't try to cling to an identity and if I'm say I'm an alcoholic isn't that clinging to an identity that's you know a legitimate rationalization uh, <laughs> you know it, it works well I think uh, uh, you know, and it, it kind of comes back to the Buddha saying, don't always just believe things because they're logical. Because you can logically kind of work your way. That's why, you know, two lawyers can argue completely opposite points and make complete sense. You know, you listen to one without the other and you're completely convinced, right? That's logic. Uh, it's not truth. It's just logic. Um, it is expensive. <laughs> Thank you for that, Alice. I wasn't sure you were with me, but I'm glad that you... So, so what I've come to about this question of am I an alcoholic or am I not an alcoholic uh, is that it really doesn't matter if I am an alcoholic or not an alcoholic. That what really matters is, is my life manageable when I'm drinking? I was never diagnosed as an alcoholic personally. I didn't go through treatment. I chose to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I was never, never got a DUI. <laughs> I don't know why, but you know, <laughs> luck, I guess. Um, you know, so, so I could rationalize certainly that I wasn't an alcoholic as I did for many years. But what, I've come, what I see now, and why I don't cho choose to drink now, isn't so much because I'm an alcoholic, but because I see that when I was drinking and using, I had problems, but I couldn't really deal with them. Today, I have problems, and I can deal with them doesn't mean I can always solve them, but I can deal with them. And I believe that if I went back to drinking and using, again, I would be in the position of not being able to deal with my problems. So am I an alcoholic or not? Who cares, really? The question is, can I deal with my problems? And that's what the word manageability is talking about, I think. That uh, it, it isn't really about some label or some diagnosis. Uh, and I can certainly understand that people resist that diagnosis. I mean, uh, you know, when you read, it's easy if you read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to say, well, I was never like that. Yeah. 
at least it's easy for some people, not for everyone. Um, and so you can then infer from that, well, that's alcoholism. My behavior is just drinking too much. You know? So then it's like, again, it's kind of like asking the wrong question. Am I an alcoholic or am I not an alcoholic? That's not the question. The question is, is this working for you, right? Are you managing your life? Even that, you know, I've heard people say, well, my life is manageable. I'm like, okay, great. You know, then why is it that you're questioning? You know, the very question itself uh, is usually indicative. The fact, if someone gets to the point of saying, I think I'm, I wonder if I should drink or not. You know, it's usually, <laughs> the answer is usually pretty clear. Because it's not a question anybody wants to ask themselves. And they usually only ask themselves that out of, uh, you know, some despair. Um, you know, so, so the, this, this question of managing though, really does then come back into this bigger question of not just meditation but our lives and, and what our role is in it. And, you know, right effort in, in Buddhism um, is such a subtle thing. And, uh, you know, people want, uh, well, tell me how I should practice and what does it mean, uh, how do I practice right speech or what is, you know, how do I be mindful and, uh, you know, how much effort should I make? And really, the only way to know that is to try something and then see what the results are. And then try something else and see what the results are. And, and after a while, you collect enough data to kind of see what works in what situations. And, what, and if we're just speaking about meditation, we start to notice that in certain physical or mental states, certain aspects of practice are more useful. Uh, that maybe in this at this time I need to do loving kindness, or in this energetic state, I need to do some kind of deep breathing concentration practice, um, or some other mind state. I need to kind of have this real openness. And I need to kind of discover, well, how do I do that? How do I get into that place of openness? And, and this is why we have to practice and practice and practice, uh, because each day is different, and each day offers us a different challenge. So it, it's not a matter of, oh, read the book, now I know how to meditate. It's, you, you know, you're, you're writing your own book about how to meditate. Uh, because you're working with your mind. And, you, and as much as our minds share a great deal of qualities, a great many qualities, there are also the uniqueness of our internal experience of what, how those qualities manifest and how to work with them. So we practice to, in some, one reason to practice regularly and, and in an ongoing way is to really learn to navigate all these different aspects of our mind and body, to learn to be with them, and what, it, how to let them become manageable 
fact, one of the terms that the Buddha uses when he describes a mind that is very clear and concentrated, he uses the word wieldy. And I remember seeing that word wieldy and going, I've never heard the word wieldy before. The word I've heard before is unwieldy. And when I think of unwieldy, I think of like, like maybe you've got like a, I'm trying to hold a tree or something, and it's kind of like, whoa, it's like it's totally unwieldy, right? I can't manage it. I can't control it. It's like just out of, but a mind that's, so I realized, oh, wieldy means that I'm, I can, I've got it. I've got it. It's just nice and in balance, and I can, I can wield this, you know, wielding a, and I guess I think about swords, too. There's something, it kind of relates to wielding a sword, you know, and, and, uh, which is another image that, uh, um, Lee Brasington uses the, the Manjushri, who is this uh, bodhisattva in the Tibetan tradition, I think. Uh, anyway, not in my tradition, so I don't know. But Manjushri has a sword, and it's the sword of wisdom. And Lee says that practicing concentration and developing a, a wieldy mind sharpens the sword of wisdom so that you can cut through the bonds of ignorance. It's a beautiful image and it's this wieldy sword, you know, that's, it's not like, oh, I don't, can't do this, you know, it's, uh, yes, you know, it's just this real a powerful kind of clarity that arises. So uh, this brings us around to manageability, right? Because if, if everything is unmanageable and we're powerless over everything, then it kind of can be this, well, what the hell? I, why bother? Because if, if I'm not moving towards manageability. So um, I think that this practice and our, and our program, in some sense, are about learning what power and manageability are and how to wield them. You know, and they have to be wielded very carefully, right? Because as we know, power is, there's a risk in power. Many people who have power, so-called power, abuse it. It seems to be a you know, somewhat common uh, thread of our political culture, for sure, as well as our economic culture. And so uh, the same thing is true of, of spiritual power. Uh, these, the, the gurus and people who abuse uh, their students or abuse their their uh, communities, uh, and indeed, I, I I believe that when people talk about uh, black magic, that they're actually talking about wielding uh, mental powers, uh, which are are the same ones that are actually being developed uh, in meditation, but in meditation where our motivation is different. Uh, it's not to develop power in order to control things or to, to uh, acquire things. It's to try to develop power to learn to let go and to be free in ourselves and to be of service in the world. Well, I've taken myself pretty far astray. But uh, it seems like we're safe so far. I don't think we've gone into any too dangerous territory. Um, but it, what that's, you know, the natural thing that that leads me to talk about is 
is the intention behind our actions, and specifically the intention behind practice, which again comes because when we come back to the idea of managing in power, when we are approaching our practice with the intention to control it or to develop power, this would be considered, in strict Buddhist terms, wrong intention. And the result is not going to be beneficial. So even before we step into this process, although, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll complete that sentence before I correct myself. Uh, bef even before we step into the process, it's helpful to look at or have some sense of what our intention is and recognize that um, if we can, that uh, that intention is very important in the process. But, but w the way I want to correct myself is, by, is to say that probably most of the time we don't, aren't going to be very clear about our intention when we start in, in a process of developing a meditation practice. Um, and, I, and I think that a lot of times probably when we get sober or clean or into a program, we probably start out with a somewhat skewed uh, intention as well. Uh, I, you know, the 12-step philosophy is kind of do the right thing for whatever reason, uh, and you'll figure it out. From a Buddhist viewpoint, that's kind of upside down. So this is one of the places that I'd say Buddhism and the 12-step programs have an apparent contradiction. I don't think it's, it's actual, but uh, because in Buddhism we say that uh, we don't say the end, end justifies the means. We say the means are the end, or the means uh, really um, inform the end. That we can't take uh, unskillful or um, you know, break the precepts in order to g do some higher good. That as soon as you step into that realm of unskillful action, that uh, you're on shaky karmic ground. Um, so I'm not going to try to uh, resolve that potential conflict between the program and the and Buddhism, because I think ultimately they arrive at the same place. Uh, but I, it, it's something worth noting or observing. So, and so I, what I would say, though, is that at some point, maybe not at the beginning of our journey, as with my students this week, at some point we have to kind of wake up to, oh, what, what is driving me here? What is my motivation here? And that, uh, that's when we kind of have to check inside and see what do I really want and hopefully as we've been studying or practicing or cleaning up our life we come into a, a deeper place of a deeper motivation that isn't so self-centered that isn't so certainly desire oriented or power oriented but that starts to see uh, because I'm interconnected with everything and that uh, how I behave really affects the world and that happiness actually comes by bringing goodness into the world rather than pleasure, I start to see that uh, my motivation really is not about satisfying my own 
selfish or self-centered desires. And that then becomes our touchstone, the thing that we refer back to. And um, so that as we do develop power and the ability to manage, to some extent, our lives, uh, our, what's driving that, what is, what is um, motivating and guiding that is a spirit of service, a spirit of compassion, a spirit of wisdom. So that feels like a nice place to stop. And, uh, and we still have some time left. So if people want to comment or uh, make any corrections or ask questions. I think that it's like visiting a burn unit, uh, what we're talking about. And, uh, we're all wrapped up in bandages, and the realization didn't come until we found ourselves in a hospital bed wrapped in bandages. Management wasn't even part of our life. It was an afterthought. Yeah. Uh, we never, I was never aware of that or had any perception that uh, I'm not managing things right. Uh, my personal life was my business, and my career life, I was. I was really good at it. Mm-hmm. I was really good at finding the faults of large construction projects. Why they're, it's easy to find out when things go bad. Yes. Things go really visibly bad. <laughs> to have somebody step in and say, you guys are all fucked up. It's like, and you pay, you pay these people? <laughs> you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So manageability is, was non-existent. It mm-hmm. didn't come about until... I saw myself wrapped up in bandages, and, yeah. and that alcoholism isn't like those other addictions that, uh, that cause such collateral, severe collateral damage. I mean, they just have a lot of effect not only on yourself but other people's lives. I mean, being overweight isn't going to affect somebody else's life. I don't mm-hmm. think driving a vehicle under the influence certainly would, and, uh, yeah. and some decisions that you make that. Aren't even aware of having any power or powerlessness or any uh, uh, concern. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's a good, good image. The burn unit. Yeah. yeah. humorous the ruminations on whether I'm an alcoholic or not or whether you're an alcoholic or not. Mm-hmm. fairly endless relatively unproductive and somewhat ignorant discussions mm-hmm. um, one of the great benefits of the three billion dollar war on drugs is we funded some pretty smart people collectively studying addiction and addiction recovery. Mm -hmm. Generally in the psychiatric and psychological communities. And um, they put together a a couple of really good tests that classify from normal behavioral versus addiction.
addictive behavioral standpoint, mm -hmm. whether we are in fact alcoholics or addicts. Mm -hmm. those, those tests are quantified in the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual. Version 4 was, was the Bible for the last six years or something like that. Version 5 is out. It lays out uh, problems with drugs and alcohol in two categories, abusive and chemically dependent. Mm -hmm. It lays forth, I think the abusive category lays forth five questions for each person to answer and, and affirmatives on like three of them get you in the abusive category. And, and the chemically dependent, I think is seven, seven questions and three or four get you in the chemically dependent category. So um, it, it's not really something that that I need to put myself above the experts and ignore the wisdom on. It's actually there, easily Googled up. Mm -hmm. And much more definitive and wisdom oriented than the ruminations that I hear almost endlessly in these groups. I assume you're not referring to my rumination. <laughs> I, I would like to assume that anyway. Yeah, I mean, the trick is just to get somebody to take the test. That's, I think that that's the, that's the hardest part, you know. If you can get them to take the test, you, you have a chance, yeah. Well, I'll have to look that up. Thanks. I have seen the DSM before, but uh, not the new one. You know, there's been a lot of arguments about a lot of things in there. Yeah, Gavin. Hi, my name's Gavin, and I'm an alcoholic. Gavin, it's really nice to be here. And uh, I really enjoyed your talk and uh, a lot of things I heard tonight. And um, one thing I, I don't know when it hit me about the first step, but what I like about it is um, and my opinion is also this. Um, it uh, when we first come in, it seems like you know, um, you know, we're, our lives are now clearly unmanageable, and we're at a point of willingness. Although I was fighting it, you know, every step of the way, mm -hmm. and um, but it, it was a good jumping-off point for me to go. Um, you know, I am an uh, alcoholic or an addict. I now look at that as the identity of my ego more than um, mm. my, like, inner person that wants recovery. Yeah. And, um, and it allowed me to, uh, to realize that I was this split thing um, internally, or, you know, or that's what makes me go. And I still, you know, I still have that battle going on today. But um, then I couldn't identify the uh, the motivator that was, you know, enjoying the uh, the ride of you know the torment, mm -hmm. which now I recognize as my ego, and um, so uh, so to be able to sit in a room and go, I'm an alcoholic, and um, and my, you know, and my life is unmanageable, which I didn't grasp for a long time either, but I was finally uh, led to um, kind of follow that my life is unmanageable when I do it my way, 
which is the big me, yeah. right? And, um, and the big me will just have me killing myself because it doesn't know it's going to die in the process. And, um, and uh, so when I realized I was capable of that, then I suddenly became a little more willing to do it your way and, um, and, follow, and ask for help, which was critical for me because yeah. um, I finally was able to go, okay, I don't know what I'm doing if I want to um, survive this ride. Mm. And, um, and to me, that was, uh, you know, the point where, you know, if I was willing to ask for help and I was willing to um, do what you suggested, then um, it opened up a whole variety of possibilities for me that I didn't have to figure stuff out anymore and um, I could, uh, you know, take suggestions and, and choose the one that, you know, I wanted. And if yeah. that didn't work, I could ask somebody else and, uh, and keep going, which um, to me, you know, just uh, allowed the proof of there's a something collectively that's caring for me out there. Yeah. And, um, and I don't know, I just wanted to put that out there, I guess. Yeah, you know, there must be a book or something with the title, something like Surrender to be Free or something like that. And that just, that's kind of reminding me of that, just that sense of how, you know, the this, this seeming bottom is actually the beginning of freedom. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. You know, but am I an alcoholic? Am I not an alcoholic? Am I an addict? And the idea of using that with an identity, you know, like that's who defines it, defines what I am. And, you know, for me, what I recognize is, and, and that's the other thing about the program, I know people who, I mean, it took me a while to gain like a, I was just saying this to somebody, you know, went to an all those Catholic school in the deep south, the language of AA I found very alienating mm. um, If not familiar, but. Uh, <laughs> right. well, capital. Sure. Um, but what I what I recognize, what I love about AA is the power of paradox. That you know, even inevitability, helplessness, all of the things that you know, like even when I realized that I had to lose, you know, I let go of control. But what I realized was that I didn't really let go of anything that I was actually controlling. It was just illusion. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Or even so. that I'm an addict. What I recognize when I was set free from this idea of identity is because when I was in a room with people who, you know, we were like a Gap commercial. We couldn't be more different from one another. And this geography that I had visited that I thought was my personal hell and my personal shame and something that was unique and definitive about me and that I was helpless to actually escape and it was this nightmare, you know, I realized that other people went there and that it wasn't maybe what made me special at all. Mm. In fact, that's not at all what was unique about me. Mm. And that's the other paradox of that. And I say I'm an alcoholic, mm -hmm. but in a sense it frees me from my identity as an alcoholic. Yeah, 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 it's nice. Well, um, we're just about out of time, so let's just uh, do a little closing ritual.
just settling into the body again. Feeling your breath right now, right here. Now is the first evening of the new year for this class. I'd just like to offer the wish that we may all have a beneficial year, that we may find ourselves moving in the direction of freedom. We're continuing to move in the direction of freedom. That we may be willing to surrender to that which we don't control. That we may be willing to surrender to the process of recovery, the process of mindful meditation. May we each commit ourselves to this work in whatever way we find the most useful and meaningful at this point in our lives. And may our work on our own spiritual condition be of benefit to those around us, to those we love, and ultimately to all beings and to this planet. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you very much for coming, and um, hopefully I will see you next month. And uh, please come to the uh, class series if you're interested, and uh, let others know about it, um, so it can be helpful. Thank you. <laughs>